Well, welcome back to the Bill Bennett Show. Oh, boy, plenty to talk about, Claude. Plenty, plenty. Uh, we take a look at America. We take a look at the existential threats to America. We talk about our president. Lots of liberals, Democrats, media think he's the threat to our country. We take an honest look, you'll hear that in a minute, at the current administration and President Trump. Joining me today, Conrad Black, author and non-affiliated member of the House of Lords. We'll talk a little 2020 presidential election and President Trump as steamroller, as he says. I also want to ask him about Brexit in London. He was over in London, so let's find out his thoughts about that. Also, fascinating article by Mark Mills. Mark is a senior fellow at the Manhattan Institute. He's a McCormick School of Engineering fellow at Northwestern University and author of Work in the Age of Robots. We'll talk about his recent piece, Inconvenient Energy Realities. Uh, Just the math and the physics about why we're going to be uh, using oil for a while. What's wrong with the Green New Deal? Facts, facts, facts. Very, very good stuff. All right, Claude, here we are. Uh, let's see, two, three days, four days after the famous tweets of the president. So what did you think, Claude, when you read those tweets or heard those tweets read to you? Oh, uh, yeah. You know, when I first uh, saw the tweets, first uh, saw the report, uh, the first thing that came to my mind was, oh, goodness, here we go. I, I, you know, I just felt like, not just felt, I feel as if it's, you know, a bad move uh, by the president. I mean, I think it's unnecessary, um, way too mean-spirited. Uh, I'm not surprised by it. I mean, you know, he's he's a rough guy. I mean, he he shoots, and so um, that's that's what he does. But, yeah, I just thought it was a, a, a bad move by the president on this one. Would you characterize them as racist? You know, as far as racist or, or, or racism, you know— uh, to me, you know, when you start bringing out, you know, go back to, you know, to your country and you start, you know, this is their country. There were three that were born here, you know, uh, and the other's a citizen. And so this is their country. And so the only thing that would make you say um, your country refer to another country as theirs, um, you know, would be their ethnicity, would be their race. And so, yes, yeah, I, I see where that comes into play. Yeah, I was I said, oh, boy. Oh, my gosh. Here we go. Um, and my first thought was maybe this is the uh, competitive athlete in me. Man, you know, why, why fumble like this? Right. Uh, right. Because you had Nancy Pelosi in opposition to these four. Mm-hmm. And then you step in and become the opposition to these four. So they all come together. Right. Right. My brother, my mother used to pay my brother, you know, my brother, Uncle Bob, Mm -hmm. uh, a nickel a day to stay out of fights because he loved to fight. We were growing up in Brooklyn and there'd be a fight in Brooklyn. Two kids would be fighting. There'd be a circle of kids around them. My brother would get in the inner ring of the circle and lean in, lean in, lean in until eventually he caught a punch and then he'd jump in and take the place of the other guy. That's what Trump did here. Right. Pelosi's having right. a good fight with these four and mm-hmm. he leans his jaw in and takes takes a punch or throws a punch and now he's in the fight. I, I would have just let them continue in their own squabble. Now there is, I, I don't think it was racist specifically. First of all, I'm having trouble with racism in the use of the word because it's being bandied about and thrown about so loosely, so right. wildly, it you is. know. Mm-hmm. But, uh, you know, he was he, he was talking about, you know, go back to your country of origin. Well, he's just wrong about that. Sorry, President. Mm-hmm. You know, their country of origin was the United States, <laughs> three out of four of them. He's talking about you know, their ancestors, and he's talking about the criticism of the country. He just he just mushes it all together in one big shake, you know? Right. And and that's what confuses things. But I agree with you. It gives his enemies grounds or reasons to say, ah, see? Now, have you heard the grand political strategy, the genius behind this, supposedly? Have you heard this idea? No. That the idea was uh, there's this separation between Pelosi, the establishment Democrats, 
who are liberal, even quite liberal, mm-hmm. uh, and these wild liberals, the squad. And the idea here was to coalesce them, collapse them into one. Mm-hmm. And that by attacking them, Nancy Pelosi had to come to their defense along with the other Democrats. Oh, okay. So you now can identify the whole crowd as squad-like. Okay. okay? All right. Squa- mm-hmm. Squaddish. Okay. <laughs> and, uh, a, new, a new word. Mm-hmm. So he was doing that on purpose. I, I, in the long run, this may be what happens. And in the long run, this may look politically smart. But my first thought was, you know, why mess up? Why get in the way of a fight that's already, you know, when your enemies are fighting, why get in the middle of it? Let them destroy each other, your opponents here. The other thought I had was, how's this going down with those suburban moms? And I think that's a problem. I don't right. think they like that kind of talk. Mm-hmm. It's just whether you call it racist or not, it's it's kind of mean talk and it's, it's got a history. Yeah, it's it's like got a history in this right. country. Go back where you came from, you know. You know, but it was it's been used on everybody and it's right. old right. thing and it's ridiculous. And I don't think anybody thinks he really is a racist. I mean I I, I, I mean, I, I don't. I know the guy. But it gives fuel for, for uh, his enemies. I like what uh, Lindsey Graham said. He said, you know, don't get personal. Focus on policies. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You're on strongest ground with policies. And in terms of, you know, getting them all to coalesce around very liberal policies, they're doing that. Look at people running for president. They're for open borders. They're for health care for all undocumented aliens. Uh, you know, they're 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 going off the left cliff. Uh, mm-hmm. You don't need to push him. And by the and, way, uh, I think I think it, I think it's a good. I mean, I think <laughs> I think a winning statement for me is, hey, for folks who hate this country so much, you can leave anytime you want. Yeah, no, leave country right. of origin out of it. I think for anyone born in the country or not, if you hate America, feel free to leave. Yeah, Alec Baldwin and others, people keep threatening to leave. Get get out. You know, go on. That's fine. Go. um, Now, he did get a break, I think, on this, in that immediately the day after the squad had a press conference. I don't know if you saw any of that. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But it was kind of ridiculous. And they showed, you know, kind of their contempt for him and in some ways the country. Right. And they called for impeachment. You know, big call for impeachment. Mm-hmm. So, you know, that could be another, you know, hey, just don't throw me in the briar patch. Whatever you do, don't throw me in the briar patch. Right. And, um, you know, this may, this this thing probably adds impetus to the uh, to the impeachment movement. So let's go to another topic, lest it be forgotten. <clears throat> Women's soccer. We had that great conversation with Jennifer Braceras right. <clears throat> about... Uh, men and women in competition, but I, I couldn't resist this wicked column by Ann Coulter on soccer. <clears throat> All those big soccer fans out there, hold your ears or just move on to the next segment. <laughs> this is deliciously wicked. Um, she can be a very bad girl. You know, we had her on the radio show a lot. And then Electrify- she, uh, electrifying. <laughs> yeah, st- stepped over the line a couple times. Atomic, but, yeah. But listen to this. This was her... Um, Article entitled America's Favorite National Pastime, Hating Soccer, begins with this. I've held off on writing about soccer for a decade (laughs) or about the length of the average soccer game (laughs) so as not to offend anyone. But enough is enough. Any growing interest in soccer can only be a sign of the nation's moral decay. Is there an MVP in soccer? Everyone just runs up and down the field, and every once in a while, a ball accidentally goes in. Mm -hmm. That's when we're supposed to go wild. I'm already asleep. (laughs) we got to send this to Chris Beach, huh? (laughs) Right. Mr. Soccer himself. Yeah, he's a great soccer player. No other sport sport ends in as many scoreless ties as soccer. Uh, Often they end at 0-0. She's right about that. Yeah, yeah. 
Next point, and I'm skipping a lot, too. You can't use your hands in soccer, thus eliminating the danger of having to catch anything. <laughs> she says, what sets man apart from the beasts, besides a soul, is that we have opposable thumbs. That's right, opposable thumbs. They can mm-hmm. bend and stuff. Our hands can hold things. Here's a great idea. Let's create a game where you're not allowed to use them. Next, I resent the force-fed aspect of soccer. The same people trying to push soccer on Americans are the ones demanding that we love HBO's girls, Light Rail, Beyonce, and Hillary Clinton. <laughs> the no- <laughs> That's very funny. The no- Isn't this hilarious? The number of New York Times articles claiming soccer is catching on is succeeded only by the ones pretending that women's basketball is, is fascinating. You know, to that point, I saw an article. I'm trying to remember whether it was ESPN. It was somewhere that said that, that you know, the, the fashion statements made by players in the WNBA should get as much attention as the fashion statements by the NBA players. And they did a style e- thing. It was, ridic- it was ridiculous. Did you see one of these NBA WNBA players was uh, arrested or cited for domestic violence? Uh, yeah, that happens. Uh, you know, that happens from time to time. I've, I've seen several of those stories. Was that with like her living partner? Was that a, a woman and woman thing? I think so. I know one of the more highly reported ones was maybe a year or two ago with Brittany Griner, who played at Baylor. She's in, in the WNBA now, and and, I, and she had an incident with another WNBA player. They were dating or something. And yeah, was, all right, let's move on. Yes. Yes. Next argument against soccer that Dan <laughs> Coulter makes: it's foreign. <laughs> In fact, that's the precise reason the Times is constantly... We ought to give this to Donald Trump, right? Take your soccer balls, go back where you came from. That's the, uh, that's the precise reason the New York Times is constantly hectoring Americans to love it. Mm-hmm. One group of sports fans with whom soccer is not catching on at all is African Americans. Yep. They remain distinctly unimpressed by the fact that the French like it. Soccer's like the metric system, which liberals also adore because it's European. (laughs) Despite being subjected to Chinese-style brainwashing in the public schools to use centimeters in Celsius rather than inches, feet, and Fahrenheit, ask any American to the temperature, and he'll say something like 70 degrees. Mm -hmm. And they'll talk about miles from Boston to New York and anything else. Um, Then on and on it goes. She said... uh, if more Americans are watching soccer today, it's only because of the demogra- demographic switch affected by Teddy Kennedy's 1965 immigration law. I promise you, no American whose great-grandfather was born here is watching soccer. <laughs> One can only hope that in addition to learning English, these new Americans will drop their soccer fetish with time. Oh, no. uh, you know, our friend Brian Kennedy, on a serious note, told me a story. I think I've told this audience this. Maybe it's the radio audience. He was watching a soccer game uh, at a place. He was having lunch and a drink uh, with a friend in Los Angeles. And USA was playing Mexico. And there were a lot of people in the bar, and a lot of them were immigrants, legal or not. He didn't know. Mm -hmm. But he said they were all cheering for Mexico. And he said he was just offended by that in the United States. Mm. People cheering for another country. But anyway. All right, here's the thing that we want to hear from the audience about, okay? Okay. Related to this, I was talking about this with uh, my sons, and one of my sons referred me to the following article. This was, I think, two years ago. Yeah, in 2017. Uh, Are you listening closely, Claude? Yes, sir. In preparation for two upcoming friendly games against Russia, the U.S. women's national team, Mm -hmm. many of them the same today, 
played the Dallas Under Fifteen Boys Academy on Sunday, and they lost five to two. And this is the national, the national team. The U.S. national team played Dallas. Oops, sorry, keep your straight face. Under fifteen boys. All right, and fell five to two. There you go. Just last month, the U.S. lost the She Believes Cup, winning the first over Germany, losing to England. Uh, but this match against the academy team was informal. It was really a scrimmage, blah, blah, blah. But I've read about it several times. Right. So what we want to ask Chris Beach, I'll ask you to be a correspondent on this for the show. Or <laughs> Bill Bennett show has, Claude does everything, including its national correspondent. Give Beach a call. Okay. Ask him whether this story is true about the under-15 in Dallas, whether they could beat them today, mm-hmm. or how would a very good high school soccer team or a very good uh, college, or decent, a decent, decent college. men's college soccer team, like the one Beach played on mm-hmm. for Patrick Henry, how would they fare against the women? Right. The national women's team. Okay. We welcome email on this, especially angry emails. Right. <laughs> from soccer players, soccer moms, mm-hmm. whatever. Yeah, we'll okay? take that on all day. Yeah. Okay. Bill right. Podcast at gmail.com. Right. Um, that's correct. And I understand that we're going to be talking to Phil Steele very soon. I was soon, just about it? to say the same thing. Speaking of soccer, we can get rid yeah. of that. Um, <laughs> yeah, forget it. That's, that's the last I'll say soccer yeah. for 10 years. College football is right around the corner. We'll have Phil Steele from the uh, Phil Steele College Preview Magazine uh, on. Uh, we'll do a two-part thing with them. We'll uh, have one on two podcasts back-to-back. And uh, we've got the interview coming up, and, uh, yeah, we'll play it back soon. Claude, another topic, higher ed. Okay. Particularly 1.6 now going to 1.7 trillion and soon to $2.0 trillion mm-hmm. in unpaid student debt, which, ironically, the government lists as an asset because it's money that's owed them. So the... The fiction here, the accounting fiction, is that the government will collect all this money. Doubt it. Um, anyway, the, the the sum is enormous. It's the largest single liability on the federal books and growing. So you have the Sanders, Bernie Sanders proposal and the Elizabeth Warren proposals, forgive all the student debt. It ain't going to work. Um, I will tell you I'm having conversations with the administration about a sensible, a sound plan to this. The Sanders-Warren stuff puts an incredible burden on the taxpayers to bail out college students. And as uh, no one more conservative than Pete Buttigieg points out, uh, that's regressive. It makes people who haven't gone to college pay for people who do. Mm-hmm. But it also doesn't solve the problem of what do you do going forward. If you have free college education, you forgive all these loans, the universities are just going to guess do what? What's the first thing they're going to hear when they hear higher education is free? Oh, they're going to raise the rate. They're the gonna, <laughs> you <laughs> have absorbed the Bennett hypothesis. Mm-hmm. You're a genius. <laughs> so they're going to raise tuition, and the bills will go up. And Bernie says, well, it's just for public institutions we're going to do this. Well, they'll go up at public institutions. Um, anyway, um, it's uh, look for look to the private sector here. Uh, it just can't work this way. You just can't keep putting these burdens on. By the way, when you listen to these Democrats, Joe Biden's promises, we're going to do this and we're going to do that. We're gonna, what is the bill for all this? Right. No, I mean, it's just right. one huge spending thing after another. You know, if now, I, I, I want to yeah, please, things, no, please. You know, they, they, please. they speak about they, they talk about students who have large loans as if those students are some sort of victim in the fact that. They didn't know what they were signing up for. Now, I get it, that, I, but 
I think about myself and the way I paid through college and the way Sierra paid through college. You know, it took us a little longer. We had to work our way through it, and we had some grants and things like that, but we didn't want to take loans out, and so there were just other ways to do it. What Correct. about us? What if we just said, you know what, we're going to go four years yeah. and take our big loans, and just and it'll be paid off by the politicians? Like, they aren't someone who was taking – I mean, I get the fact that the, the prices are high, but that's not the loan issue. That's the school issue, as you had pointed out. Yeah. You know I mean? No, it's And so right. those who take out those loans, I don't – they're not necessarily victims of anything. <laughs> no. You know, they're not – No. You know. No, 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 the, no, they're not. Uh, they did it and their parents did it and they're liable for it and it's contract. But um, let me just say this. When we look at the unending uh, 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 river of debt, I want this administration the second term to address this thing. We're going to hit a trillion dollars, I guess, deficit spending this year. And got to get after the entitlements. I know this is a little bit of Paul Ryanism and I can hear some people booing me. But Paul was my intern and my friend and I think he's right. You got you to get control of spending. And there's ways to do this with Social Security, with Medicare, etc. And got to do it. And there's been no interest in controlling spending on the part of the Trump administration. I think it needs to, to be raised. I've raised it, by the way, with Mick Mulvaney, a former head of OMB, uh, who is now chief of staff. I've raised it with Larry Kudlow, uh, Council of Economic Advisors. Uh, you just got to get the spending under control. And there are ways to do it. Go back to, you remember uh, Paul Ryan, The Road to Prosperity? Yeah, I do, yes. And there's some good ideas in there. And, you know, there's all this stuff about Ryan trashing the president. I haven't been able to talked to Paul about this, but I, I kind of doubt it. I, 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 I'm going to think these these uh, comments are taken out of context. According to my meeting with Paul Ryan, his relations with the president are good. They talk, and, and they're good. I mean, they're not the closest friends, but uh, they talk, and relations are good. Anyway, I hope that gets addressed. But back to the student loan thing. This is just another, you know, federal, huge federal forgiveness program, which, as, as you point out, I mean, the fiscal uh, dimensions are, are ridiculously huge. But as you point out, there's this fairness thing, too. You know, what about people like you and Sierra who worked hard and figured it out and took extra jobs and cut your expenses? And, mm-hmm. you know, this is the analog to the immigration of people who played by the rules and stood in line, you know, filled out the forms as opposed to just piling in over the border. Didn't want to take a loan, so as opposed to doing four, four and a half or five years, took seven, you know, <laughs> and uh, worked yeah. through it and, yeah. and used community college as a two-year, you know, uh, yep. starting point. Right. Yeah. I mean. Right, right, right. And uh, I did take student loans uh, through uh, college and law school. And uh, when I got out in 71, I owed, I owed $24,000. I don't know what that is today. Someone told me more than 100, 150. And the first three years I was working, I paid it off. I just paid it all off. I just lived like a pauper and paid it off. I just hated the debt, you know. You're listening to The Bill Bennett Show. Bill Bennett Show. And here is Conrad Black. Uh, welcome back, Lord Black, Conrad. Uh, did, you were just in uh, England, weren't you? Did you go because Donald Trump told you to go back where you came from? <laughs> I actually and to came fix your messed Montreal. up country? No. And, <laughs> I, I, okay. So I didn't take it personally. No, I, I, I went to... Uh, I went to Help him celebrate his public relations victory there. Tell us about Brexit. You did a great column. Uh, Boris Johnson, Britain, Brexit. What's gonna, What's happened? What's going to happen? Well, I, I think Boris is almost certain to be chosen conservative leader and therefore prime minister in, in a few days next week. And, uh, uh, and then the parliament will go on its holiday a few days later until September 3. That period he will fill by trying to steady the ranks of the conservatives and assure 
the uh, the remainers who are basically two thirds of the conservatives that he will make an effort to get a deal with Brussels, but uh, this time he will make it clear to Brussels, unlike what Theresa May did, that uh, Britain doesn't have to have a deal. I mean, she violated the premier rule of any negotiation, which my father taught me when I was six years old and was setting up a lemonade stand, which is you don't ever give the impression to who you're talking to that you have to have a deal, or they'll put you to the wall. So he will make it clear in Brussels, and, and this new leader there, the German defense minister, it will be much more promising. As long as it was in the hands of Belgium, the Dutch, and, and the Luxembourgers, they were taking out their frustrations on centuries of being condescended to by the great powers in Europe. And, and, uh, Madame van der Leyen, I think, will be much more easy to deal with. And not a pushover, but a sensible person. And um, and, and and he'll say, look, we, you know, if we leave, it's a grievous blow to you. I mean, we, you know, we've been independent for a thousand years or, or, or longer, but uh, and continuous institutions for almost that time. But this is a new venture at the European Union, and if we leave, it is a terrible blow to you people. Uh, uh, the second biggest economy walking out and into the arms of the Americans and Canadians. So make us a serious offer. You know what our parliament's like, uh, and 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 I can give you an idea of what will pass. But if you don't, we're out. Trick or treat on on October 31. And I think he can probably, and he thinks uh, he can hold his party on that basis because he can't afford more than a couple of them voting against him, and and, and then they they force an election. Now, if they force an election. He'll make an electoral alliance with Nigel Farage, and while the last vote, the Brexit vote, was close, 52-48, over 400 constituencies had leave majorities. So he'll win one way or the other. And, uh, and, and then I think you'll get Brexit done either with a deal or without, and, and then Boris has to stop uh, being a comedian and, 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 run, and run the government. But I, I think he can do it. But Brexit will That's happen. That's a long and, answer, but it's a complicated question. No, I understand, but uh, but I want to pause over one part with this better leadership out of Germany than than uh, Belgium, uh, uh, Brussels. Um, is there a chance they'll rejoin? That they'll get an offer they can they can they can accept that people will accept? Well, I, I think there's a chance of a sort of a common market with no political integration. And in my time there, when I spoke in their lordship's house, which I'm looking forward to doing again, uh, and, and as a newspaper publisher, we always advocated a, a two-tier Europe, political integration for the countries that wanted it, which is essentially Germany and, and some of the countries around it, like Austria and Poland and the Czechs and so on, and parts of Scandinavia, and, and, uh, and uh, uh, economic common market, but but otherwise full sovereignty for those who wanted to operate at that level, and that would be the British and the French and some of the others, uh, and most of the others, and and you know like we've had in North America. I mean, uh, the United States hasn't meddled in the Canadian government the way Brussels does, trying to control all these countries. We don't get up here directives from Washington telling us how to stack newspapers and things. I mean, we, and and uh, that would work, I think. Then you then you'd have a you really have the old Greater Germany sought by Bismarck but achieved by voluntarism and not by force, in a cocoon of a common market or military allies as well. And I think, I think that would work. And Britain would be free to, make, you know, to operate its own foreign policy. I mean, when I tried to set up a foreign policy committee of the House of Lords 15 years ago, 
the former foreign secretary, Jeffrey Howe, who was in charge of these things at the time, said, no, we can't have that. We have a European Affairs Committee. Well, I mean, the, the British were never going to accept that for very long. I mean, they're being asked, really, to, to put into the dustbin the institutions they worked at that have served them well, as I say, for certainly since the return of Charles II in 1660. And, and, and in exchange for this, this, to take a phrase from Brit Hume, of all people, this floating crap game in Brussels. Yeah, okay. Okay. And Boris Johnson, uh, for Americans unacquainted with him, this is a friendly figure for Donald Trump. Is he a Trump-like figure? Uh, not. He's a more sophisticated traditional education and no business background, so he's not Trumpish in that way. But he is a showman and an entertainer, extremely amusing man. Um, he's, he's had, in this sense, he's had a, a sort of an extraordinary career moving from between faraway points. He, he he went from being our Brussels correspondent, where he had a great influence in British opinion on Europe, to the editor of The Spectator, the witty magazine that we own, that, that that's a, a politically reasonable New Yorker and not as uh, as pompous as the New Yorker, and um, and and then to he he was briefly an MP and uh, while he was editor, and then he became mayor of London, where he was very successful. Uh, and and produced the Olympic Games, for example, and then Foreign Secretary, uh, and then leader of the uh, of the Leave Group, the Yes Brexit Group of the Conservatives, and uh, next week I think Prime Minister. And you and you know him very well. He worked for you, right? Indeed, indeed, I do. Yep, him, yep, I yep. And no, he and Trump get along. I mean, he, and he's very pro-American. He was born in New York City. One of his parents was American, and he. Uh, Actually, that's not quite right. But it was an American resident, certainly, and and um, and and, and he, he'll be fine, I think. But he's he's going to have to raise his game a bit. It's not a comedy routine anymore, right? But he and Trump get along, right? They get on fine. They love right. fine. Look, in right, terms, was, I think Trump got on fine with Theresa May too. But he warned her that you can't, you know, stay and leave at the same time. Right. You, I'd love to read your columns for a lot of reasons. Learn new words, learn things, learn about the world, learn history, learn more about FDR from you than I have from any number of biographies. But you're also tonic for my worries. So I will confess, when I, when I saw the tweets, you know, go back where you came from, and I went, oh, no, oh, Lord, and, and I see you just dispense with it in a paragraph. Mm, not a problem. Come on, Conrad. Well, this is, I, this I, is I, My helpful. initial reaction was, you, we have a kind of, I think all people who wish, whoever is the president of the U.S., we always wish that person well. You know, we want, we want the country to do well. We want the president to do well, whatever it is. So I, but with Trump, I have, we all have a sort of litmus test of, Oh God! Is this is this a a uh, showstopper? You know, and we, which is what most people thought over the Billy Bush tape. You know, when he was a I candidate. Did. Now I, I didn't did. because I thought that uh, yep. uh, the people who would be really seriously offended by it were people who had no intention of voting for him anyway. Uh, and, and then he made his apology and made his counterattack on the Clintons and carried on. But um, wait one second. He also was lucky because that was right on the eve of the debate with Hillary Clinton, which made some of us worry. But then realized what a great opportunity. She can't go after him about messing around. Not Mrs. Clinton, and, 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 for God's sakes. Bill, I, like yourself, I'm sure, 
I think I'd watched virtually every presidential debate that ever been going back to Kennedy right. and Nixon, right. and right. none of the of the participants in them before were under the pressure he was under. And, and the first sign I Absolutely. had that, that, that Trump, who I'd known for twenty years, really had had uh, you know what Hemingway called grace under pressure. It wasn't exactly grace, but at least calmness was the way he handled that. Because I thought he won the debate, and at the beginning of it, Reince Priebus was basically saying he should go, the party chairman, and yeah, Pence was observing complete uh, radio silence, and uh, you know, people thought his campaign was finished. And, and uh, under that pressure, he, he, he measured up very well. Uh, here, I think he's, he's carrying it back to them. And I guess, I, look, I think the facts are we're going to get a public debate here where the where the gang of four, I do not accept the word squad, it's too respectful, but, they, they, uh, but, the, but those, those people are extremists. I mean, they really do, uh, do say outrageous yes. things. You've got yes. two Islamists, one, you know, a Black Lives Matter of the let's kill white policeman wing almost, and Ocasio is, I think, not so violent, but, but she is certainly... Uh, completely irresponsible on the accusations she makes against others and is an out-and-out Marxist. Although I, I have no reason to doubt she believes in at least democratic elections since she's profited from them. But uh, but um, uh, that, those people are completely off the charts as far as 90% of Americans are concerned, uh, or at least 80%. And uh, by tying them in there uh, and and making it sort of Trump versus them, Rather than Trump versus somewhat more respectable people running for president, uh, I mean, some of them are no prize either. But they're they're all pretty Lincolnian figures compared to to those four women. Um, I think it's probably tactically smart. And and I, you know, if asked what I would do, I would ask the Senate leader to pass a resolution condemning them. I mean, if we're going to get into this nonsense of imposing a majority in the House of Congress to criticize somebody in a way that struck me as improper um then you know two can play that game all right let's go back though i want to i want to take this part disaggregate this a little bit there's now the notion out there that i've heard from uh friends and supporters of uh, the president friends of mine this was a grand political strategy this was to to uh, force the Democrats to defend the squad, the four, and therefore to lump them together so that the whole world, or at least America and the people in the middle, will think of the Democrats as the squad. Now, I will concede this very well may come to pass. It may be coming to pass already. It may They may have helped. Uh, that cause uh, themselves unwittingly by having that press conference, which they call for impeachment, impeachment. But do you think this was a grand design by Donald Trump? No. Come on. Not a grand design, but another tactical instinct. Like a a coach calling a single play in a football game. I I mean, I I think he... The grand design is, boys, this is what we're going to do. We're going to fill the air with footballs. You know, that's a quote from Y.A. Tittle, I think. But this this isn't that. It's the next play is let's see if we can't get the gang of four as the as the most public and recognized face of the Democrats. And 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 you know, I I think I think they've sort of played into his hand a bit. I think in the end, the should dance to his. Thing, Bill, yeah, please, please. I don't want. Sure. I don't look. I'm. I, we're, this is speculation. What on earth do I know about it? I mean, I'm not waiting for an answer because I know what the answer is. But the the uh, I just offered this thought. I happen to note the latest polls today, 
And the very latest ones that were taken since this controversy began on the weekend, um, uh, Erasmusen is always relatively positive about Trump, but they and the Southern USC poll were, were the only ones that were accurate in the last election. They're, they, for the first time, have him uh, majority approving him, uh, 50 to 48. And, and the economist, wh- wh- whose hatred of Trump is equal to the New Yorkers or Politico or, or you know, Gallup or some of these others, uh, they have him at 46. Now, this tells me that he actually is holding all of his you know, reliable yes, sure. support, which is sure. a very large number of people, but a little less than half, and he's adding something to it. And now that's premature. One, you know, it's just it's just a whiff of what may be happening. But insofar as there's any straw in the wind, it appears to me that it, it supports the tactical wisdom of this policy. Now, the larger point is: should the president of the U.S. get into rubbish like this? And that that that's that's admittedly a, a legitimate point. But you know, we have the president. We do. We're not talking about you know we're not talking about Jefferson or Woodrow Wilson or FDR or something here. Although. Although I had some of FDR's stunts were, 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 you know, they were more elegant, but they were just as Machiavellian. Yeah, okay. I, I, you anticipated where I was going. You're ahead of me, too. I, these are polls taken since the tweets. Is that right? Yeah, if you look at Real Clear Politics, uh, uh, summary of the Trump approval polls today, this morning, the top one is Rasmussen, 50 to 48 in favor. Now they've, they've, as I say, they've been relatively good all along, but never that good. And and the Economist, which uh, you know six months ago had him down at thirty-seven or something, and every week was referring to him as the worst president since Fillmore or something like this, if not ever, uh, and, and must kill him to write this. But but they show him at forty-six percent. So if he's at forty-six with the Economist, uh, he's probably well over fifty. Good. All right, you're ahead of me on that. And that was my next question, which is I've been I've been watching the um, uh, the Democrats' response to this, and one of the major responses I've heard you've heard is well, this is all fine with the base. He can't hurt the base, but he doesn't get above forty-three. But what you're reporting is that he's just up above forty-three because he's, of this. When I left for England two months ago, he was about forty-four average, and that's bringing in all these. Absolutely, predictably anti-Trump polls. You know, take I don't know what their model echelon of voter is, but they, but you know, this is Politico and some of these others. You know, they're, they're always very hostile. And, and um, but but uh, he's risen three points since then. Post hoc ergo propter hoc. That you think this is because of that? Now you're reminding me of Bill Buckley. He's the only other hey, person hey, I know. I'm from Brooklyn, but I did go to Williams. I did go to Williams and Harvard, and I did major in philosophy. No, do you think it's because of it? That's everybody, folks. Post hoc ergo propter hoc happened after the fact, therefore because of the fact. So it happened after the tweets. So you think the tweets? Uh, I, I think bumped there's him an up? element of that, but here again, I, it was yeah, very tentative. I, I'm not prepared to, you know. Get up on top of the parapet and, and uh, you know, ra- you know, raise the flag like in Mount Suribachi at this point. But I, 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 I don't think it's a disaster for him. I mean, I, I, I think everybody agrees that 
the people who really like Trump would agree with the sentiment, the hell with these people, they're anti-American, they do nothing but criticize, they're extremists, they are, I, I don't know about Ocasio, but I think, I think the other, the two of them are Islamists, and, and the one from uh, New England is a, is, a, is a black radical, I think, and, uh, and, and that's not America, I mean, look, it's a democratic country, and everybody has a right to a view, but, and to express it, and they've been elected fair and square, but, but, but that's not where the country is. And, and and Trump is saying that, and most people would agree with him. And not just hardline, not just the caricature of Archie Bunker, blue overalls, metal lunch pail, Trump supporters, with a case of Budweiser in their other hand. I, okay. Uh, the, uh, I agree with you on this. Uh, the one thing you said, which is it must have pained these people who published these polls to write it out. If they wrote it out, there must be something there. If there was any way they could deny its reality, they would. So if they're putting it out there and it's good news for Trump, you know it's got to be true. You know, it's the uh, it's the hostile witness argument. Yeah. You know? Well, in fairness, I, I think Rasmussen is fair. I, I I agree on the economist. If they could somehow round the numbers down a bit, they would do it. But but as for real clear, they just publish the polls and then they give you an average of all of them. But. I, I mean, I discount half of that because some of those polls are just anti-Trump polls. I mean, the question is probably, uh, when asked what you think of President Trump, uh, say you think favorably or unfavorably, depending on how you compare him to Abraham Lincoln or something like that. You know, you get some ludicrous question like that. As you Quick know, thing. you're an old veteran of these things. It's, it's how, you, how you write the question. Sure. And nevertheless, for them to admit the good news is, I think, very encouraging for, for Trump since, they're, since they are a hostile witness. So I think one of the I think that one of the things that grates I've been watching a lot of reaction to this obviously um, but one of the things that really grates that these people talk about isn't so much Trump as you know calling the, um, the the places on the border concentration camps and the ICE people uh, Nazi uh, you know I think that, that that takes Trump out of it and just these people know these guys are you know. Not highly educated, doing a good job, wearing a uniform, have an impossible thing. I don't understand why people don't just say how ridiculous this is to be blaming the country that people are coming in when they're coming in. And in, in if you did this at the Four Seasons, for God's sakes, and overran it with ten or twenty times what it was uh, set up for, it would be a, it would be a chaotic and unpleasant place. No. Yeah. And, and also, I don't want to get too sanctimonious here, but it is not just the trivialization of some of the starkest and most horrifying facts still within the living memory of many people. It shows a historical and either a passive or a deliberate historical ignorance that is you know, to anyone who writes about history, as you and I do, a really obscenely obtuse thing to do. I mean, the, the, the Nazis did unleash World War II. They did murder 12 million people in death camps for no plausible reason whatsoever, even for people who believe in the death penalty. And and uh, half of them were Jews, which was half the Jewish population of the world at the time. But half of them were others, and uh, so so you know we all were victims in some, in all our ethnic groups in some ways, and 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 they're comparing that. 
to a, a, you know a border force attempting to deal with with due process and as best they can with people entering the country illegally. I mean, it, it is it's. It's outrageous. I mean, Cory Booker saying we must fight climate control as we went in the same way that we went ashore in Normandy. It was just a joke. It was ludicrous. I mean, climate change is essentially a lot of nonsense, I think, or at least we don't know much about it. And on that, I agree with the president. But in any case, it's not like the greatest military operation in the history of the world to liberate Western Europe from the Nazis. And, and, um, and, and But that, that was just absurd hyperbole of the kind that Trump is regularly accused of. And uh, but to compare what went, what goes on at the U.S. southern border with the with the antics of of Nazi Germany is, is scandalous. It's a it is a a terrible libel on the country. I asked people the other day. Uh, you're absolutely right. I asked people the other day. Seen those pictures? Uh, come up, some of it looks in shadow of you know a hole in the fence. You've you've seen it, and just hundreds of people running in. You know uh, at the border. And I said to someone, so the analogy is with the Nazis. So it was hundreds of Jews just racing to get into those cars, those cars on the train, right, to, to the go to the, the cattle cars. They were just racing to get in there. Is that is that what your analogy is? I mean, I, yeah, the historical ignorance. Listen, I think, you know, I think this is our biggest problem. That's why I'm writing a a new history book, but uh, because I don't think people understand America and what it is and its Are achievement in the world. Yes, well, I wrote one, three volumes, America, the Last Best Hope, which was actually well-reviewed on pretty much all sides, although people took shots. But I'm collapsing it into, uh, truncating it into one volume, 1,000 pages. It'll be out in October. And I'm Look, you know, I, I hoping... That, is your three-volume history still in print? If so, I'll look yeah. at it today. Yeah, yeah, yeah. America, well, the Last order. Best Hope. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You'll I, I I went back and checked some of my FDR things, and you'll want to correct them. But I'm basically basically okay, but I don't know as Look, much. Look, we about have to take FDR back from the left, and I and I, I told Bill Vandenheibel and others that the, the the Roosevelt Foundation, Franklin Eleanor Roosevelt Foundation, should stop intervening in current affairs always in a sort of ever-leftish view. Because FDR himself would not agree with any of this. He would he would consider the present state of the welfare system an outrage. He, he was for workfare. You know, that's not, he put everybody back to work, and, and, and then when the private sector could take them from his workfare programs, they did. But, but he said, I'm not paying people to be idle. And, and he didn't. Right. Right. Let's uh, let's close with uh, the Fourth of July. I saw you wrote about it a little bit the celebration in Washington, the speech by the president, and so on. And uh, I love I love this comment when they said, "Well, you had a couple of historical inaccuracies in there about airports and things, the revolution." He said, "Well, the teleprompter went off. I had to." <laughs> <laughs> I had to wing it, uh, yeah. but uh, uh, oh, fine. But uh, your reaction to it, I, I was really kind of surprised how good it was and how, how good a, the event it was. Really very well, pleased could, with certainly it. Certainly, you, you could always count on the military carrying it off well. So he, yeah, he sure can. The president's performance, I thought his speech was good. I mean, it was, look, to non-Americans, it was that slightly... Uh, um, what should I say, slightly voluminous American, you know, 4th of July oratory, and, you know, all countries do. do it up to a point, but but that's fine, I mean, that's what happens on the 4th of July. I thought it was, I thought it was goodness. I wrote uh, today the, 
you know, he was inspired to think of this by attending the Bastille Day festivities a year yep. ago. Yep. And, yep. you know, I, I used to go to those things when de Gaulle was present. And, I mean, that was, a, that was a blood-curdling show of strength, you know. I mean, it wasn't just a, a crisp parade of well-trained men and women. It, it you know, that, that, was, that was really designed to intimidate some people and, um, and impress the country with the military strength that it possessed, and this I thought I thought this was an exemplary taste. I thought the criticism of it, you know, the carping about the cost and so on, was just asinine. And I, I I can't believe that the majority of Americans didn't think it was basically a good thing. I mean, the country was celebrating Independence Day. Independence was achieved by uh, a tenacious. Uh, act of, of skillful guerrilla warfare by Washington and, and his officers, and and um, and what is wrong with celebrating it with a military parade? Nothing is the answer. There's nothing wrong with it. Yeah, no, absolutely. All right, we will let you go, sir. You are tonic again to my uh, my worries and anxieties. You're like a doctor. I'll call you up. You need to make a house call here soon. And remember, you can have dinners with everybody else, but I want to put on the lunch. You give me your guest list, all right? It's coming up. You're listening to The Bill Bennett Show. Mark Mills joins us now. He's a senior fellow at the Manhattan Institute, McCormick School of Engineering fellow at Northwestern University, and author of Work in the Age of Robots. Let's get to this, Mark, and thank you. This is a really good piece. Uh, actually, it's a summary of a piece, Inconvenient Energy Realities, uh, and it's linked to a longer piece, but we're going to put this up on our website. Uh, I'm just going to read the first paragraph and then ask you straightforward questions. Uh, this is this, folks, folks, let me tell you, this is just a great summary of what you need to know. Best thing I've seen on this. Mark writes, a week doesn't pass without a mayor, governor, policymaker, or pundit joining the rush to demand or predict an energy future that is entirely based on wind, solar, and batteries, freed from the burden of the hydrocarbons that have fueled societies for centuries. Regardless of one's opinion about whether or why an energy transformation is called for, the physics and economics of energy combined with scale realities make it clear that there is no possibility of anything resembling a radically new energy economy in the foreseeable future. Bill Gates has said that when it comes to understanding energy realities, we need to bring math to the problem. All I'll say about that is it sounds very much like what I've been saying about political issues and other things, educational issues. Reality matters, and uh, reality matters here. Uh, just a question for the real uninitiated like me. When you say hydrocarbons, freed from the burden of hydrocarbons, that's that's oil. I mean, that's, that's what we get from oil from the ground. Oil, coal, and natural gas, the three... Okay. The three anchors of civilization for roughly 150 years. Oil, natural gas, coal. Uh, All right. How come? How come? Uh, You have, what, 41 reasons, I think, in this summary. What are the the most important realities? And that's what I want to focus. What are the realities that the the new uh, green uh, economy is not uh, taking account of, the principal ones? Well, I think uh, we could divide them into sort of three... So simple buckets. You know, when Bill Gates said you have to bring math to the problem, he, he was talking about the features of scale, you know, how big our thing is and how long does it take to change things at a society level. So there's a scale issue. The other, the other uh, sort of math problem is, is uh, uh, I guess, what you would call the velocity issue. Uh, you know, when, when scientists and engineers invent something new, how long does it take to, for it to make a difference, to become part of the market? And there are certain myth, myths now 
in play because of how fast you know, apps can be distributed in a phone, which is, of course, very different than energy. And the third category is uh, what I would call the physics of pigs can't fly. I mean, it's sort of, I don't mean to be disrespectful for those people who think pigs can fly, but uh, it's another way of saying some things can't happen in the physics of energy. Not that they shouldn't happen, some things shouldn't happen, but some things just can't happen. So I, I would put them into three buckets, and uh, these 41 points, uh, as you point out, is our uh, sort of a simple summation in those three buckets of those three categories. Let's go to bucket uh, bucket number one, principal points here. Well, for scale, uh, the world is big, right? There's a lot of billions of people in the world. So uh, it's very hard to visualize that. But maybe the easiest way to have a sense of what it would take to change the energy economy is to, is to start with a fact. Today, the, um, all of the renewable energy production in the world is roughly equal to the oil, gas, and production of the world a half a century ago. So in absolute terms, it's, that means there's a lot of renewable energy being produced, and that's uh, quite something, right? And it's, as I said, roughly equal to the total energy production from oil and gas industry for the world 50 years ago. It took the world half a century to increase oil and gas production tenfold. So we use ten times as much uh, oil and gas today. It took half a century to do that with an incredible amount of money and effort. The Green Dream proposes to increase world energy production of renewables by 90-fold, not tenfold, by 90-fold in one-third that amount of time that took to get oil and gas up tenfold. You could say in the real world that actually, to use the millennial locution, that's actually impossible. There's just no possibility. There's no amount of money or wishful thinking or policies that can cause the scale of the infrastructure for the world's energy needs to grow essentially 10 times faster uh, for the whole planet as has happened in the last half century. Because these, we're talking about moving you know, tons, gigatons of stuff, billions of tons of things, billions of tons of machinery. You know, what, whatever it is, it doesn't matter whether you make your energy by you know, planting big wind turbines in the ground or planting big oil rigs in the ground. It makes no difference. They're made out of steel, concrete, plastic, take backhoes, caterpillars, and deer machines. I mean, it's just the real world requires moving physical, real things. And it just takes time and money. So I'm, I guess you'd put me as a, an optimist. I think the world's energy economy will change, uh, just as it has in the previous centuries. But it takes centuries, not decades. And it will, we will see more wind, solar, oh, et cetera? Sure. Yeah, of course. I mean, it, wind, wind and solar arrays are so much better than they used to be. That's why there's lots of them now. So the enthusiasm is entirely well-placed. They're a lot better than they ever were in terms of cost and efficiency. And there's going to be lots more of them. But the world's demand for energy is so big that even if we see, uh, you know, incredible growth rates, you know, 100% a year or some, you know, crazy number, uh, it still becomes uh, in a decade or two a minor share of the world's energy needs. That's because the world consumes just so much energy. Okay, but this may partly explain the enthusiasm. As things have improved for wind and solar, yeah. making its contribution, people say, oh, this is so good, and it has so many other benefits, let's cover the world with it. Yeah, no, it's a, you can understand that the re, it's, you know, it's not an unreasonable uh, reaction to see that uh, there's been roughly a tenfold improvement in the cost efficacy of wind and solar in the last 15 years. I mean, that's really something. 
And that's why it's easier to have policies and programs to do them, and it's why you see more of them in many parts of the world. And so it's, if you combine that with the expectation that it could happen again, and a lot of people believe that and have stated as much, we've got, to quote to some people, we've got 10x gains coming in wind and solar, which will disrupt the oil and gas market. We don't have 10x gains coming. The 10x gains are behind us, and the reason we know that is actually locked into the physics of energy. We know that you can't get 10 times better again with wind and solar arrays because the physics limits are now being approached, which is what happens with all technologies. You get real big improvements early on, and then the improvement pace slows down. It's uh, and the economists call this the law of diminishing returns. In physics, you'd call it, you know, you get near the asymptotic limits. You know, if you remember in high school math, that curve called an asymptote. You get, you get a little bit better every year uh, spending money, but you can't get improvements as big as you got in the past. But people think you might. And so it's very common. You know, I'll go to a conference or a meeting or I'll be at a debate, and invariably somebody will hold up their smartphone, wave it around and say, Look how much better this got. Look at how incredible. Who could have anticipated the disruptions that Amazon caused, that Google caused, and Facebook caused to the, to the world? That's what's happening with silicon solar cells, just like that's what happened with silicon logic. So this is the most common analogy that's used, and it is profoundly wrong and profoundly naive. It's impossible for the physics of energy to follow the physics of information. Like to give an example of the uh, sort of reductio ad absurdum. If it were possible, for example, for batteries to get as uh, improve as fast as computers and smartphones have, that would mean we'd soon see a battery that would be no bigger than a paperback book and that would cost three cents and that one battery could fly a, a Boeing jumbo jet from New York to China. That can never happen in the universe we live in. That's actually physically impossible with the physics we know. There's no visible physics to get batteries that good ever. In fact, they can never get as good as oil. That's the problem because oil is one of the most remarkable high-energy density fuels that exists. In fact, uh, you could say, and it's a reasonable thing to say, that if oil didn't exist, we'd invent it. Is this a question uh, with an answer? If we take the energy uh, needed or uh, consumed as a 100 what was the solar uh, wind uh, contribution 50 years ago, 20 years ago, and what is it today? What percentage of 100? Well, this is why you know, people are excited. It was uh, almost unmeasurable. You know, tiny tenths of percent of the global energy uh, supply came from wind and solar, and now we're all up to 2%. So if you okay. could imagine going from you know, 0.1% to 2%, that's, that's a 200-fold, you know, 200-fold, so 10, 10, 20-fold growth. And it seems incredible in, in a decade to go up 10 or 20-fold. Where could we be in 50 years with uh, solar uh, wind? Uh, well, I, well let's, 50 years is a, always a tough forecast, right? I mean, uh, 20, 10, let's whatever. Say 20. Let's say in the next couple of decades. It's entirely reasonable to think that uh, you could get, uh, with a lot of, uh, I think, with subsidies, you could get solar and wind providing something like, say, 10% of the world's energy, which would be astonishing. You know, a five-fold increase in the next 20 years. If you're an investor, that, that's a massive industry. Um, if you're an environmentalist, I, frankly, I'd be worried, uh, if, even though they don't seem to be. But it could, yeah, it's not crazy to think it can go up another five or tenfold. So you'll end up with a very significant share of the world's energy in some countries coming from wind and solar. It's already true in Germany. They get uh, a very significant share of their electricity 
and uh, the total energy. You know, they're up to about uh, you know, 15, 20 percent of electric grid, and they're you know, it means it's about five or 10 percent of the total energy. These these are these are meaningful at national levels, but it doesn't mean the end of the age of oil and gas and coal. That's that's the point. In fact, the world's demand for oil just for aviation is growing so fast, and of course you can't fly jumbo jets on batteries, that that alone will overwhelm any any replacement of oil with things like Teslas. You mentioned that was uh, an aside, but you said if you were an environmentalist, you ought to be worried about if it were 10% uh, and rather than 2% wind or, or solar. How come? Because these are very diffuse energy sources, as everybody knows. I mean, you have to have... Here's the easiest way to visualize it. If you if you if you've ever seen and and I have and you probably have many many people you can see pictures of it. If you see a field of wind turbines stretching to the horizon, you know, these these are each the size of the Washington Monument. They stretch off to the horizon. You have to remember that they're made out of steel, concrete, and plastic resins, all of which require coal, um, oil, and natural gas to produce, and a lot of minerals dug out of the earth. You could replace the entire field going to the horizon with a half dozen gas-fired turbines the size of a, of a semi-trailer. And the point of that is that the physical materials that have to be mined from somewhere on the planet to make all those things is astronomical. If we push hard the way environmentalists are now pushing for lots more wind, solar, and batteries, it will cause the biggest increase in global mining that the world has ever seen. If you're an environmentalist, you ought to be worried about the magnitude of the increase of mining. And remember, most of this mining, because environmentalists don't like mines in the United States, takes place in, in other countries, in Africa, in, uh, in Russia, now, some of it's in Canada, to be sure, but a lot of it's in places like Bolivia, Argentina, and we saw what happened in Brazil with some of the big mines. Big mines are, are, are a challenge. Um, we can do it properly here in the United States, but most of the mining will be global. Most of the materials will have to be imported to America. It's, uh, it's, the quantity of materials is astonishing. Well, let me give you a sort of a factoid. To store the energy contained in a pound of oil, you need about 50 pounds of batteries, and those 50 pounds of batteries will take something like 100,000 pounds of stuff that you mined out of the ground, moved to process to make the batteries. I see. So people aren't counting the process that to, to get to that final product exactly. in terms of its environmental effect. They're not counting. They're not counting the stuff you dig out of the ground and process and mine, all of which takes energy and all which requires you know, environmental caution. But the quantities of stuff that have to be moved and dug out of the ground, the processes to make wind and solar, are somewhere between 10 and 100-fold more material-intensive than hydrocarbons. Okay. What about the argument that we better get going on this front, wind, solar, because we're going to run out of juice uh, from the ground? Well, most environmentalists have given up on the peak oil theory, the idea we're going to run out of hydrocarbons. They've, they've given up on the theory because, it's, first, it's wrong. <laughs> there's, still a, there's still a fringe group that, that remember and like and cherish the peak oil theory, but they, they switched to a different theory now. Their theory, which is, seems to be more persuasive for a lot of people, is not that there's a peak supply of hydrocarbons. In fact, we know the world has thousands of years of hydrocarbons, so yeah, eventually you could consume most, a lot of them that are easy to get, but we're talking you know, a thousand years. So essentially infinite. They've switched over to um, peak demand. Their view is that they're promulgating is that wind and solar batteries are getting so cheap so fast that if you're an investor in oil, gas, and coal, you ought to be 
selling your stocks because we're just going to eliminate you because we don't need you anymore. Yeah. That's the new thesis, and it's it's you know it's based on this uh, this fictional analogy between computers and uh, and energy. Let's uh, that environmental uh, detour we just did a uh, very very interesting. Let's get to the realities. Um, Bill Gates talks about the math realities and the physics realities. What are those realities that will keep this new green revolution from uh, taking over? Well. I guess the, the, the thing to do is to think about what the physics limits are, and it's, you know, people don't like to do physics. I mean, I'm, as you know, I'm biased. I was trained as one, but the physics aren't that hard to explain. A, a solar cell, when they were first invented, were not very good at converting the light, the photons, into electricity, you know, a few percent. And so engineers just got better and better at it over the years, and now we've got them up to where about a quarter of the incoming light can be converted to electricity. So you've got ten times better. That's remarkable. So you have in your head, I can get 10 times better again. This is where the physics come in. If you're, and this is you know, physics and Bill Gates' math, if your solar cell is 25% efficient, that is, the, the light gets converted to electricity at a quarter of it, you can't get 10 times better again. You can't be, you can't be 250% efficient. I mean, that's science fiction. You can only get, as, at most you could think, oh, I could get 100% efficient, but you can't even get 100% efficient. The physics of photovoltaic effect that converts light into electricity, the physics limit's about 33%, which is, means the maximum number of those photons of light that come to the Earth and the sun that can become electricity, it's about a third. We're already at about 25% conversion efficiency. So you can do the arithmetic here. There's sort of like 10 percentage points of improvement you've got left, 10 percentage points, not tenfold. So you can't, you can't, uh, you can state that they can get ten times better, but they're not. You could also say, well, they'll get cheaper because we'll get better at producing them in volume. That's true. You do, we do get better at producing things in volume. But the key cost of, of uh, solar arrays and, and wind turbines is in the materials because so much materials is requ- are required, and all the key materials are already in mass production. You know, silicon and copper and indium and silver. And, gold and all the, you know, glass, that's the majority of the weight of these things. They're already commodities. They're already produced at commodity prices. So there's some incremental improvements come from manufacturing efficiency. There's no, like, tenfold gains. That's the physics limits. Wind turbines are the same. I mean, you can't take 100% of the energy out of moving air because if you do, there's no moving air. I mean, you just sort of think about the topology here. So how much of the movement of the air, that kinetic energy, can I convert to electricity? That's actually a known uh, number. It's called the Betz limit. It's about 60% of the energy in air that moves can be extracted as useful energy to make electricity. So the question you want to know if you want to know the limits, the physics limits, is how much, how efficient are today's turbines? Well, they're about 40% efficient. So again, you could look at it and say, well, I can make them better. Yes, you can. You can go from 40 to start to approach 60%. But that's not tenfold. Right? These are incremental gains. So the, those who are claiming that we'll just keep throwing money at these things and we're going to get these big gains um, are spinning a, you know, a fiction that's equivalent to saying, that's why I said, you know, pigs fly. It's like saying if I keep throwing money in an airplane, I can get it better and better and eventually I can get to the moon with the airplane. There's no air in space, so airplanes don't work in space. So no amount of money will make an airplane get to the moon. You have to invent new, a new type of engine, which is called a rocket, that goes to the moon. So the point Gates has made, and I've made in many other places, but he's more famous, so I'm glad he's making the same point, is we need new kind of engineering, new kinds of physics. The 
solar cells we use today are the equivalent of airplanes that we're trying to get to go to the moon. We need rocket engines to get to the moon, so the so-called moon shots for solar, but we haven't invented the equivalent of a rocket engine for solar yet. It doesn't exist yet. Is this the point that you make in your discussions, your panel meetings, arguments, debates, that stops people dead in their tracks? What's the, what's the clincher, or what's the one that can't be answered, or is it all of these points you've made? What's the one kind of insurmountable fact that the Green New Deal people uh, have to face? Really, even if solar were cheap enough today, it's not. It's really about 300% more expensive than hydrocarbons to make energy reliably. Even if it were, we can't scale it as fast. They said there's not enough money or people or machines in the world to do that. So that that just is a non-starter. Then the second non-starter is you can't make it 10 times better, even if you throw an infinite amount of money at it. The problem is, for them, the penultimate is what you said earlier. Yeah, but we have to start. It's too important not to get off hydrocarbons. We have to start. That's why I use this uh, facetious analogy of pretending pigs fly. It's like pretending you can fly and say, well, I've got to try anyway. I'm going to jump off the cliff. You're not going to fly. There's no possibility you can fly. You can flap your arms as hard as you want. A lot of the Green New Dealers are basically jumping off a cliff, flapping their arms, saying, follow me. We have to do this. I don't want the whole economy to follow us off the cliff spending these quantities of money on things that can't make a difference. So if it's true, what they claim, and it is disputable, that we're facing some kind of uh, apocalypse of the climate due to burning hydrocarbons, then the only answer to it is to say, look, we better think more about mitigation. What do you do to adapt to a world that's different in its climate? And, and of course, their technology is our friend. We can do a lot of stuff. We've been doing a lot of things to adapt to, uh, to the nature's environments and insults to us for decades and centuries. That's where I was going to go uh, to conclude here. What's your detente position, the Green New Deal? All right, we can't have pigs fly. Can we get pigs to move a little faster? That is, what what can we do? What concession can we give? What what encouragement can we give to uh, wind, solar, etc.? What, what do you um, want them to do in, in the spirit of, okay, I can't buy this you know, theory you're going to take over. You never will because of the math and the physics. But let me encourage you in this way. What do you say there? Well, I think the, the politics required detente, right? That's just the reality issues, you, as you know better than I do. So then I redound again to Bill Gates. Uh, I'm 100% on board with his, his uh, position he's taken publicly many times. So if you need to uh, have a path to a radically different energy future, it only can come from new science that we don't have today. That means that we have to um, cease and desist throwing more money at things that can't make a difference today's wind turbines and solar arrays, and direct money to basic science and basic research. We know for a fact, because history tells us this, that what what Gates calls miracles, and it's a reasonable phrase, uh, miracles do emerge from new science, but they emerge from new science and they emerge in sort of serendipitous ways. So the the detente position is, let's just stipulate that we'd both like to have a new class of energy in the future. It'd be great if we could come up with technologies that could shrink man's footprint on the planet, it's, you know, our environmental uh, footprint, by 10 or 100-fold. Of course, that'd be great. We don't have those technologies. We need new science. The new science comes from basic research. Let's increase basic research budgets. That has to be, this is the key, though, that they taught us, let's spend money there. I'm, I'm, all, I'm all in on that. But the, it can't be directed. Uh, serendipity, Nobel Prizes, these do not come from saying, make me a better wind turbine. 
they come from saying to bright, young, curious people in all the different science disciplines, just follow your curiosity. Do basic research in biological domains. Who knows? Uh, it's not crazy to think that some future uh, biophysicists will engineer, genetically engineer algae that will excrete liquid hydrocarbons. That, uh, you know, and then somebody else who will be a chemist will invent a new class of catalyst that will inexpensively just totally absorb any CO2 we don't want, if that's what we want to do. These things don't exist today. They can come from new miracles, as Gates calls them in science. So the detente position is, let's at least agree that the science tells us we need new science. That's where we should put our money. Let's conclude with this example that I saw just a day or two ago. Uh, Harley Davidson, you know where I'm going with this, has just announced its new all-electric bike. Okay, zero to 60 in three seconds. Holy smokes. Don't ever need to do that. Glad my kids are beyond that stage. Uh, All right. Tell me about the about the energy it took to produce that. I mean, I guess I guess environmentalists would hail this, right? Because this is electric. It's not gas. It won't give off these noxious fumes. Is that is that right? But but what, what did it take to make it? So you touch on a, a point. I share, I share your view that I'm glad um, our children are also beyond uh, motorcycle riding days, especially since I rode and raced Grand Prix motorcycles. But I thought I was immortal. That's why I did it. So, of course, you okay. can do that. Right? Of course. And, and I did go 0 to 60 in three seconds on a fuel-burning engine. So I, I love that feeling. Right. Uh, I right electric for this question. Okay, good. <laughs> it's, it's a personal question. I, electric cars like Teslas are magnificent pieces of engineering. It doesn't change the fact that the battery itself requires far more materials to be mined and processed to produce the battery than producing the equivalent amount of road miles using oil. So the road mile total material consumption in the battery domain goes up. The difference is the fuel that's used, the energy that's used, isn't hidden from you, right? You, you don't know where the electricity is coming from the charge of the battery, and you don't even see where the materials are mined to make the battery. So there will be lots more battery-powered motorcycles and scooters. In fact, that would be a terrific thing, incidentally. Most scooters and motorcycles in Europe are used for short-distance commuting. The ones that are used today pollute terribly. Uh, I don't mean carbon dioxide. I'm talking about nitrogen oxides and things that cause photochemical smog. It'd be great to get, to get all those off the roads. I'm, I'm almost ready, but I wouldn't do this as a former Reagan, you know, uh, brat. I'm almost ready to say ban the fuel-burning scooters in European cities and let them be electric only just for the air quality, uh, never mind climate stuff. But that, that won't change the fact that if I want to fly airplanes and remember just to say it again, air, 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 air travel is one of the biggest, fastest-growing sources of oil demand. To get, to just to calibrate you, it can make a motorcycle carry a person with a battery, and the battery could you know, maybe go 100 miles or some, some distance, a couple hundred miles. In order to build a, a jumbo jet to fly it on batteries, using the same batteries that Carly Davis is using, the quantity of batteries that you would need to hold the same amount of energy to fly the jet to Asia batteries themselves would weigh three times more than the entire jumbo jet. Nope, that's never going to get built. It's not going to happen. There's no no path to make them as good as oil. So we're going to have both. I guess the bottom line is that they adopt decision. I've said it many times. There'll be lots more electric cars in the world in the future. It's great. I mean, I think that's wonderful. But they're not going to eliminate the demand for oil. They're not even going to reduce the demand for oil very much. Understood. Thank you, Mark, very much. Let's continue this discussion, okay? Thanks, Bill. 
Okay, folks, that'll do it. That does it for today's show. To catch up on previous episodes of this show, go to BillBennettShow.com. You can follow me on Twitter at William J. Bennett and like me on Facebook. Just search Bill Bennett. Feel free to email the show. I'd love to hear from you. It's BillBennettPodcast at gmail.com. Please share the podcast with your family and friends. We'll catch up next week. 